take out the handout sheet if you can do that as well. If not, you can grab that in a moment because I'm going to give you the fill in the blank as part of the intro. Now, we are in the year of faithfulness. We are in a series entitled Our Faithful High Priest through the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4 today. And we're in part five. So I entitled this morning's message, The Perfect Man. And I want to begin with some thoughts. Go ahead and pass those down if you can. The thought is this, and it's something that you've probably heard if you grew up in the church about a million times. But I want to reiterate it so that we can appreciate what Christ has done. Here's the point. Because we serve a holy and righteous God who is exact and perfect in every way, who is just and good, who is excellent and the epitome of all that reality should be, when we sin to any degree, we violate that relationship. When we as a people, as a creation, violate in any capacity the will of God, we are guilty of cosmic treason. The penalty then is absolute and utter death. Now we don't understand that, don't appreciate that, because we have too high of a view of ourselves. If I was to really ask you a few questions, I would probably find out that you, like me, believe that in general you're a pretty good person. And all you need is a little nudge to get over there next to God. Right? It's kind of like, well, you know what? I know a lot of other people are wicked, but me, well, I'm kind of a good guy. And I kind of do nice things. I take care of kids. And I, and I, you know, I really try to go out of my way to serve other people. And I'm really kind of a selfless person. And I, you know, I'm really trying to read the Word of God. All I really need is Jesus to give me that last 10% coverage, and then I'll be good. Let me express something to you. If you, for the next however long you're alive, were a better version of yourself and tried your hardest, you would still be at 0%. You cannot make up righteousness. You're unable to do so, and so am I. What that does is it leaves us in an impassable place. We cannot get across the chasm between us and God. We cannot cross the gulf that our sin has created. We are absolutely and ultimately lost. Now, that is all pretty depressing. That is all pretty sad, yeah? That's the bad news. Now, what's neat is that God has not allowed that to be the end of the story. He, throughout our history with him, has been extraordinarily merciful and kind to us. And the first place that he demonstrated it on a large scale, in an organized fashion, is not a place that we ever look at all. And it's the Old Testament law. When we think about Old Testament law, the Mosaic codes, the Levitical codes, all the don't do this, don't do that, everything from the Ten Commandments to the hundreds of different laws and sacrifices, we look at that and we see it as a negative. Man, there's all this restriction. Hold up. 
God didn't have to give mankind any help at all. He did not need to give them a system by which they could atone for sin. He did not need to give them anything that would help them along to reconnect them with him. He could have merely said, you violated my covenant, you're dead. That's it. You go, well, you'd never do that. Do you remember the flood? I saw it. It's on YouTube. Someone was there. All right. I think they're on the ark. All right. Now. God did wipe everybody. Now, he doesn't consistently do that out of an act of mercy and out of an act of grace. He gave them the law, explanations of what he desired, gave them a sacrificial system by which they could do certain things to cover over sin that they might still have some type of relationship with him. God didn't have to do that. The Old Testament sacrificial system is straight up grace and mercy on God's behalf. When we get to the New Testament, we find out that the grace expands even further in the person of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. We find that that which even the law could not do, Jesus did. We find that in an extraordinary act of grace and mercy, which the Bible says he lavishes grace on us, which means far in excess of what is even actually needed. He pours out on us his grace and mercy and provides us a way to be whole, healthy, reconnected to God and forgiven. How does he do all that? Through Jesus. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Christ builds the bridge from death to life. Christ builds the bridge from death to life. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there should be one under the chair in front of you. It's page 1003. 1003 Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 is where we're going to begin Now remember the author of Hebrews is a scholarly Jewish man it appears who's talking to other Men of Jewish descent or at least from Judaism as a religion and talking to them about you need to press on with Jesus and not return back to the legalistic system that you were a part of. You need to press into Jesus and not return back to Mosaic law. I understand that persecution is hard. I understand that you're receiving a lot of heat for it. And I understand the temptation to bail out and go back to what you know and what's peaceful. However, I'm telling you, everything that you're craving is found in the person of Jesus Christ. For he is greater than, and he begins his argument, greater than the angels. That was our first argument. Greater than Moses. That was the second argument. He's now going to shift down to the third, almost like a stair step. And who was Moses' brother? But Aaron, the first uh, official priest of Israel. And through his lineage are the priests and Levites. All right, so... We now are going to address the fact that Jesus Christ is a better priest 
than any priest that has ever happened here on this earth. So that's going to be the major argument, arguing that Jesus is priest. This is argued nowhere else to this degree in Scripture, only here in Hebrews. And today's message, shockingly, when we read through it, you're going to be able to understand it the first time through. All right? Very cool. Let's take a look at this. It is in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be reading, uh, let's see, 414 through 5. 10. All right, here we go. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much to praise you for in this passage. Jesus, there's so much to be in awe of who you are and what you have accomplished on our behalf. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes, that we might be able to understand, that we might be able to soak in, that we might be able to change and transform because of what you have told us and what you do with us. We offer ourselves up to you as clay in your hands and ask that you would shape us accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go through this. Not super complicated. Uh, next week's going to be psychotic. This week is considered extraordinarily tame, all right, in comparison. But let's kind of go through it and see what we can pull out of this passage. It begins like this. Since then we have a great high priest. Pause. Let's back up, bring everybody up to speed. What's a priest? Some of us grew up Catholic. And you would know maybe a little bit about the idea of the priesthood, but in Judaism, it's even a little bit more extreme. What's a priest? Well, we know that in basic terms, a priest is a bridge builder to God. It's this idea that you speak to God on behalf of people, you speak to people on behalf of God. That's the idea. It's a matter of running 
interference or being a mediator or preparing things to be appropriate for God. All these types of terms can apply in different ways. Now, the high priest is a little different. In ancient Israel, you have to remember, priests were a family line. You don't get to pick to be a priest. God selected out what family lines were going to serve him in that capacity. You couldn't just say, I have a calling to be a priest. That doesn't work. We're going to find out that's highly dangerous to try to do that. But you had this grouping, a small grouping of families that were the priests of the time. And then it appears that early on they would select among themselves a high priest to do certain functions. Now, later on, it became a bit more political in the office by the time Jesus was around, and they would be high priests for a little longer. But initially, they would pick kind of one guy that would be the representative. He would be appointed by the people, the priests. Now, this guy did a bunch of various functions, but one of his coolest things that he got to do was that once a year go into the throne room of God thing. Remember that? On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that he was able to go not only in through the courtyard where all the priests could go, he could go into the holy place where the priests could go and he would do all his ministry stuff there. But one day a year, for a short amount of time, he could enter through the curtain into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is that gold box, and there's cherubim on the top. In between there was referred to as the mercy seat or the place where the presence of God would dwell among Israel. That was somewhat of a throne place for God to sit. Now, the high priest could go in. He had to go in, get everything done rapidly, get back out. He could be in the presence of God, which is incredibly cool. But not for very long. That was something the high priest could do and he alone. All right, so we got that nailed down. So what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, let's go back to our passage. Since then, we have a great high priest. Not just any high priest, not the highest of Israel. We're talking about far in excess of that. A great high priest who has what? Passed through the heavens. Heavens, plural. Now, what does that mean? Now, you say, well, in the ancient Jewish mindset, there were levels of heaven. Hold on. Let's go a little bit more basic than that. When it says, and God created the heavens and the earth, obviously, we're not talking about the place where he dwells because he's already there. Yeah? So what is it referring to? Well, it's funny because the Bible will use the word heavens to describe a number of things. It'll describe um, our sky and the expanse of the heavens and the birds flew through the birds flew through the heavens. Then other times it'll talk about the heavens being the stars and that there were um, constellations in the heavens. So now we have two layers. Now, beyond that layer, the third layer would be wherever God dwells, which is outside of our reality, outside of our um, limited space now it was interesting because if you think about it that way i wonder if that's what paul was referring to when he said hey i knew a guy and he was talking about himself who was caught up in the third heaven do you remember that when he talked about his vision now what did he mean he meant in the place where god dwells all right so 
normal human high priest can go into the presence of God for a very short amount of time, then they have to bail out. Our great high priest went from here through all levels of heaven into the dwelling place of God and dwells there forever. Do we see how one's much higher than the other? That's kind of the point. All right. Other commentators say the priest had to go through steps and Jesus went through the heavens and to enter into the presence of God. Here's what I think is super cool about what Jesus did. Remember how I told you that God kind of talks to us like little kids and kind of tries to teach us little life lessons through silly things. When Jesus Christ ascended from this earth, does anybody remember how that story went down? He gets them all up on a mountain, right? A high place. And then he rises up into the sky till the clouds block him. Now, why did he do that? Is heaven really up? If we're spinning in a ball, is it really up? Maybe it's just out, right? Why shouldn't he have just, it would have been far more practical for him to just go bloop and disappear. I mean, because he's going, I'm going back into a supernatural realm that you have no access to. Bye-bye. And he would have disappeared. He didn't. He floated up. Why? He went up and ascended for the purpose of showing the people going, wow. And they're watching him go up. And he's like, look at me. I'm going up high. Right? Why? Like little kids going, my vantage point's way up here. It's just kind of talking to kids and helping us understand. That's it. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Do you understand in that one phrase, you have his full humanity, Jesus, his earthly name, the son of God, full deity. Just in one short little phrase, it refers to both of his natures. Who passed through the heavens, who is it? Jesus, the son of God. If we have someone like that, let us, all of us, hold fast our confession. Don't you dare let it go. You hang on to that confession. What is your confession? The gospel. 2,000 years ago, the son of God dwelt among man, walked along, lived a sinless life. And then what? Dies for the sins of mankind, is buried. Three days later, he rises from the dead, ascends up to the right hand of the Father, and will return again. That is our confession. Don't you dare let anybody move you off that confession, because that is fact, that is reality, that is salvation. And we trust and put our faith that our Jesus will take us home. We know that we cannot do it ourselves, but he will impute his righteousness to us. He will substitute his life for ours. He will cleanse us of our sins by his blood, and we will be received and be forever with our heavenly father. Yeah, that's our confession. We do not move off of that. Remember, this group was being tempted to bail out on that and go back to what they knew. He said, don't you dare. Since then, we have our great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every way, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Well, this is kind of an odd argument. Why is he arguing that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Oh, let me give you an example. 
In the Old Testament law, everything had to do with qualification or disqualification. What do I mean? Well, let me use an analogy. See if you can track with me on this one. Let's say we're in ancient Israel, all of us, and we're driving down the road, and we see a dead deer in the middle of the road. But we're on our way to temple, and we need to bring a sacrifice. Are we allowed to load the deer into the station wagon, take him to temple, and offer him up a sacrifice? The answer is no. Why? Because he is disqualified, and he's disqualified in at least three ways. What are the three ways? Well, first of all, are deer acceptable animals of sacrifice? No, they are not. Why? Because apparently the ancient mindset that was kind of a word picture for everybody was Jesus has all the wild animals. If you're going to offer up a sacrifice, you have to offer up your own stuff, your property, and that's domesticated animals. So they only apply. So you have to offer up something that you would use for work purposes that's valid. So deer are not it. What's the other problem? He's already dead. You can't bring a dead animal to a live sacrifice because you got to kill him. And you can't kill the dead deer. So you end up having to bring somebody alive. So he's already out there. The other one that I already alluded to is the fact that he's not yours. You just found him. So he's not valid there either. He's disqualified. All right. So what's my whole point? My whole point is that when you had a priest, he had to have some severe qualifications, things that you and I would find silly, things that you and I would just go, I don't get that. Why would that be a qualification? Doesn't matter. He's making a word picture. Those qualifications are things like this. You have to come from this family. You have to be male. Women are not allowed to be priests. You are not allowed to have any physical deformity. He's not allowed to um, uh, work before the Lord. You go, why is that? That's a whole nother discussion. The point is, you have to be qualified. One of the intriguing things about it is that, of course, he has to be a man, a representative of the people. That's what allows him to be a priest. Well, if we're arguing that Jesus is God, does that disqualify him? Because if he's not fully man, is he allowed to be a human priest? So the author immediately goes back and he says, hold up. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me be very clear. Jesus Christ took on full humanity, is absolutely legitimate as a human priest because he is a representative of mankind. Do you see the argument? It then says, he is not one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Remember I argued a couple weeks ago that Jesus's temptations were likely worse than ours. And I used an analogy that said, when we struggle with temptation, we tend to cave in little tiny ways to help us through the process. And Jesus didn't do that. He took the full brunt of it. Well, I was reading something else this last week. And, and I don't know this is gospel fact, so I need you to take it with a grain of salt, just something to chew on. But you know the passage in scripture that says you have you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you remember that? And it says that God will always provide you a way out. Does God do that because of our weakness due to our sin? It's kind of like he gives us help. Is it possible he didn't give that to Jesus? Jesus never needed an out on that. 
But Jesus took the full hit because he was fulfilling all righteousness so that he could trade with us. I don't know. It's just something to chew on. All I know is that what Jesus went through is greater than what we went through. And he can certainly look at us and go, yeah, I get it. I see it. I've been there. Not one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, if we really have somebody like that for us, let us then with confidence, knowing we won't be rejected, draw near to the throne of grace. Why would he use the word throne? Because he just referred to the holy of holies who gets to approach the throne of God and he has to hurry up and get out because that is a holy God and that is also a God of justice and that is a God of righteousness and he has no real business being in there. But now, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we can approach the throne, not of just justice, but the throne of grace. All of a sudden, a new word keeps getting thrown in there, that word grace, over and over. The extending favor to someone that really doesn't deserve it, yeah? That's the idea of grace. Listen, you don't earn grace. Grace is extended to you out of love, and it's nothing that you can do in and of yourself. That's the very definition of grace. Let us draw near with confidence the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy and grace right there waiting for us. So here comes the basic question. Are you utilizing that? at all do you run to the throne of mercy and grace do you ever get to sit and and soak in what jesus has done for you or are you still saying don't worry god i got this one let me give you an example uh when my oldest daughter was little jillian she wasn't super strong-willed but she kind of had her own thoughts and she expressed them very well verbally. And this is basically how it went. As a little tiny toddler, when she was not all that awesome at talking, she developed a phrase that she could say very rapidly. And it was this, all by self. Now, all by self meant, get away from me, I'll handle it. Now, so you would go up and you would say, hey, babe, I got to strap you into your car seat. And she'd go, oh, myself, and start flailing her arms so that you can't do it. She wanted to strap herself into the car seat. What's the problem? She doesn't know how to strap herself in the car seat. So we're all sitting there waiting while she's sitting there trying to figure it out, right? And we're going, you know what? We're going to be here all day long, right? And so we're going, babe, I got to help you all myself, right? Finally, we're like, no, all by self. And we lock her into her little seat, right? <laughs> I mean, it was all the way through to tying her shoes, all by self, right? You know, okay, now here's what's so funny about that is that is us. Jesus is going, hey, you know what? You really have a lot of damage from your sin. I need to go ahead and take care of that, all by self. And we just started hitting his hands. <laughs> I'll take care of it. I can handle this one. Get out of my face, right? Okay, but what does he know? He knows, no, you can't handle it. You never have been able to handle it. We'll be here all day long, and you're not going to handle it. No, not all by self, right? Sometimes we need to get over ourselves and go to the throne of grace, knowing that our Heavenly Father says welcome, 
and sit at his feet and be reminded we're forgiven. Sometimes we just need to soak in that. Sometimes we just need to have that warm embrace that grace and mercy is being extended to God's children. And that if Jesus Christ has died for your sins and he is the Lord and Savior of your life, then you can approach and we should approach far more often than we do. You know what? We can't do everything all by self. Sometimes we need all the times we need God. Yeah? It says this, chapter 5, verse 1. It said, now let me go back to this argument about a high priest and whether or not Jesus is legitimate as being so. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Remember I told you you can't choose to be a priest? You can't say, you know what, I'm sick of this whole carpenter gig. I'm going to be a priest. That is not allowed. How do we know that? Well, we have at least three dramatic examples in the Old Testament about people that tried to do priestly stuff that weren't priests, and they got beat down. How do we know that? King Saul. King Saul was to wait for Samuel, who was operating in that priestly capacity, to offer sacrifices. Samuel was late. Saul got irritated and offered it himself, and God laid a smackdown on him. We know that King Uzzah in the Old Testament tried to offer sacrifices as a priest, and he wasn't, and God struck him with leprosy. Korah, the rebellion in the Old Testament, said, Moses, you think you're all that? We can do the same thing. We can offer up sacrifices to God. We can go before him as priests. You are not all of it. Aaron, you're not the only big deal. We can do it too. And they offered fire before God, and God said, hey, you guys may want to back away from his tent for a second. Everyone backs up, the earth opens up, swallows his whole entire family. Okay, no, you don't get to do it because you want to. You are appointed by God to be a priest. He said in the same way, look at this, because Jesus was appointed by God too. And then he argues, look at this, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Remember that bridge builder thing. What does he do? To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, helping pave the way to restore that connection with God. Now, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Whoa, we just ran past two amazing pieces. What are those? Well, first of all, that word that says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. I did not read one commentary that didn't pause and stop on that word. Why? Because it's a rather special word. It's a word that is untranslatable in English. That the Greeks they said, would define words by a perfect middle between two extremes. So they'd say, instead of telling you exactly what the word means, let me explain one extreme, the other extreme, and I meant right in the middle. So this is the word that says when you're dealing with other people that have a problem, that are hurting, on one extreme there is excessive, over-the-top grief, where you're a mess, You are completely all in their situation. You're completely caught up in their drama. You can't even keep your head about you. You're bawling more than they are, and you're completely useless. On the other extreme is absolute indifference. You're like, you're going through a hard time? Whatever, that's your problem. I don't care. Yeah, I guess you do have issues, huh? That's on you. Don't bother me with that garbage. 
right in between there is this word. What it means is to deal perfectly with an individual who is struggling. It means having the ability to have your head about you, be patient, kind, understanding, helpful. All of that is loaded in this word. It's saying now the normal human priest can be that guy to all the people that come to him with their sin issues who are ignorant and wayward. Hold up. Here's another thing that kind of blew my mind recently. And once again, this is another one of those. As we walk through Hebrews, you're going to realize I don't have all this down. So another thing that I've been chewing on this week, I've been doing this examination through Old Testament law because we're really going to get into it heavy as we come forward into this passage. And I noticed something. I was reading some of the big passages on offerings for sins, sacrifices for sins. And they're largely found in Leviticus 4, Numbers chapter 15. And as I'm reading through these, all these different things, we've got to offer a bull for this and this, every time I kept seeing the word, and for any man that sins unintentionally, do this. And for any man that makes a mistake, do this. And I started looking, I was going, wait, something's weird here. What if you meant to do it? And what was intriguing is there's actually a comment in the Deuteronomy passage and the Numbers passage that says, and for the man who open-eyed does the sin before God and violates the covenant, there is nothing but a sin to remain on him and him to be cast out of society or killed. And I was like, wait, what? What, what do you mean? commentary started making these comments and they said there is no allowance in old testament sacrificial law for purposeful calculated sin i was like wait how did i miss that where did that come from and they were saying now you have to understand an expanded definition of mistake is allowed the rabbis expanded it and it was basically this if you sinned because you didn't know if you sinned because you just kind of screwed up and and did it partially wrong if you were caught up by impulse meaning an extreme impulse an act of rage or something else and then match that with repentance that was considered a mistake or if you were swept away by an excessive temptation that was considered a mistake as well. But as far as I know exactly what I'm doing, I'm turning my face against God and I'm calculated going to sin. There was no allowance in Old Testament law to cover you. Now, I'm still searching that one out because that seems totally weird to me. But I got this weird feeling in the pit of my stomach because I went, I have a whole bunch of those. Why it should bother me, I don't know. It's almost as if we keep this idea in the back of our minds that mostly what we do is not all that bad because God gets it. Or maybe it's this idea that some of us believe that there really are other options. Well, you can go the Jesus route, which is pretty awesome. But you can always go the kind of do good stuff route. Do you understand there is no other option? Here's the whole point of all of it. Do you understand how much we need Jesus? Do you understand why he's a big deal? Because you know, as well as I do, you have a whole bunch of those intentional ones too. 
You darn well knew what you were doing. You looked God in the face and said, not this time. And you did what you wanted to do. Is it possible that even Old Testament sacrificial system won't cover you? How much more do you need Jesus? Because I will tell you this. Jesus Christ said that his sacrifice was once for all. And he closed up any possible loopholes in any entire system. Do you understand that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was a covering over an atonement, a covering over of sin where Jesus is a paying for sin. There's a difference. The second is greater than the first. All right, let's move forward. Verse two, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, meaning he has sin. So he better not be cocky about anybody else. And do you understand that is the definition of Christian leadership? Really, a leader is going to talk down to you about what you did when they have sin in their life? How is that okay? Well, you don't think that you're a sinner too? Come on. There's no allowance for that. What, you think that I'm ignorant of my sin? How in the world can I come up and just go, man, you are a loser? Without me going, me too. I mean, that's the only way to talk. I mean, you can't, it's not like what, I'm super holy, like I'm a different type of being? Come on, that's ridiculous. I don't understand Christian leadership that acts a different way. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you can see your own sin, right? It's right there. It's pretty obvious. We can all see it, right? Some of us are writing it down, right? Right on. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness due to sin. Because of this weakness due to sin, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And by the way, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, the father who said to him in Psalm 2, 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right. Real quick clarification. You say, how was Jesus not doing it himself? I mean, he's the one that came down here, took on the mantle of high priest. No, this is the part that's weird that you have to kind of allow your mind to move a little bit. In the plan of redemption of mankind, the second person of the Trinity for the function became subordinate to the father. That's why it's known as father, son. Yeah. Now he's begotten, not born. That's a big, important thing. Born means there was a time when you weren't begotten means of the same sort, meaning God beget God. It's always eternal. However, for function, he had to be subordinate. Therefore, when he came down, he was completely at the mercy of the Father's will. He did not say when he was going to do things, how he was going to do things, what manner this redemption plan was going to happen. He submitted himself in absolute obedience, and the Father appointed him and said, this is how it's going to go down. So he did not choose it for himself. He allowed the Father to choose it for him. It says he was appointed by him, his father, who said to him in Psalm 2, 7, you are my son today. I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, Psalm 110, 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
That is a messianic passage referring to Jesus, and he just called him a priest. And he said, like Melchizedek, it is a bad translation to say in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek did not have an order. Melchizedek did not have any lineage that was recorded. He did not have a whole line of family that you could also be a priest in. So what's the point? We're going to get into this very heavily in a couple weeks. So I don't want to take too much time here other than to give you the basic story. Who is Melchizedek and why is he being used here? Very simply this. He's referred to only twice in scripture, once in Genesis, once in Psalms where we just read. Here's the story. Abraham, the father of all Jewish people, had just come back from beating down some bad guys and had a bunch of cash that he won in the process. As he comes walking back into a city, a king priest named Melchizedek comes out from the city, from the city of Salem, which means peace. Now you go, king priest, that's weird. I thought you had to be one or the other. King Saul could be a king, but not a priest. We learned that. King David can be a king, but not a priest. So how did this guy come out as a king priest? Well, he fulfilled both offices. You don't see that very often. This guy, Melchizedek, comes out to Abraham and blesses Abraham. And the Bible says that the greater always blesses the lesser. He blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him an offering, a tithe. 10% of what he just got gives it to Melchizedek. Now, you go, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Because it solves a problem. Here's the problem. Remember I told you that you had to be qualified to be a priest or to serve in the temple? What tribe do you have to be from? Levi. What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. Why? Because that's the king tribe. So now we have a problem, because how can Jesus be a king priest if he has to pick one tribe or the other to come through? He came through Judah. We know he's established as king, lineage from David. How can he be a priest? What the author does is say, hey, real quick, by the way, Aaron isn't the only way to go. Do you remember that Moses and Levi and all those guys came after Abraham? Abraham was their father. For all practical purposes, they were still inside him when he walks in and bows down to another guy, a king priest. Well, you know what? Jesus is like that. We don't have to do the Levi game. It's a whole different ball game. All right, let's move on. Close it out. It says, in the days of his flesh, meaning while Christ was here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers are communication and uh, intercessions, the word supplications is only used here in the entire Bible. And it means humble requests. And he offered up intercessions and requests with loud cries and tears. That word loud cries means the type of crying that you can't hold back. It explodes out of you. That sobbing with loud cries and tears. Who is he crying to? To him, the father, who was able to save him from death. You go, well, didn't save him from death. He died. Ah, but he rose again. 
And he was heard, Jesus was heard, his prayers were answered. Why? Because of his reverence. Well, that's weird. All it means is, and Jesus was risen from the dead by the Father because he finished what the Father asked him to do. He was obedient and the plan went through. That's all he just said. Although he was a son, although he was deity, fully God, and didn't need to learn anything, he took on humanity, which has limitations. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He progressed in suffering in his humanity and being made perfect, fulfilling what he came to do, being made perfect, he became, like a priest prepping everything, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, to those who believe in his name and receive him as Lord and Savior. Being designated by God who makes the rules, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right. What do we take away from all this? Here's really my takeaway for you today. What I heard in that passage was no matter how deep the hole you're in, no matter how dark the stain of sin in your life. We have a high priest who can handle it. What I heard was that, that God encouraged you to come to him because of what Jesus did on the cross. As a child of God, you have the right and freedom to run to your heavenly father and be embraced in grace and mercy and love. And some of us are so exhausted and so tired and so beat up and so sick of struggling that sometimes you just need to fall into the arms of the living God and know that you're received and loved. That's what I see. What's intriguing about the maturity of God is that some of us We'll walk up to him and sit down in his lap and start talking to him like it's no big deal. And it's only then in the presence of God that you start recognizing how messed up you are. And then you start to cry and he holds you until you're confident again to get up and go on. Whoever you are, I'm going to encourage you in this. Approach the throne of God. If you are a child of God and soak, sit there, receive, and let him remind you again on what forgiveness feels like. Let him remind you again on the fact that his grace is greater than your sin. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. That through your plan of redemption, through your son, Jesus Christ, everything can change and so lord what we want to do is soak in you and drink you up and understand that you see it and that your grace says yeah but i took care of that lord we know that we are wicked there are many of us that can look right now and instantly go through the rolodex of our minds and name all the sins that we have done
And I pray, Father, that one by one you would take those cards out and throw them away and show that you have paid for it and died for it. Thank you for being our great high priest who connects us with your Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.